Greetings and welcome to Surf's Up, the Beach Boys podcast safari. My name is Mark Dillon, author of 50 Sides of the Beach Boys, and I am here today with my co-host Phil Migliorati, who also runs the Pray for Surf blog. How are you doing today, Phil? Still in quarantine like the rest of the world, but uh, glad to be with you, Mark, and looking forward to uh, a great conversation with a, a great Beach Boy, uh, Beach Boy, really, but uh, looking forward to it. Absolutely. We have a great episode on tap. We heard from you listeners that you want to hear more from the musicians that played with the Beach Boys, and we have a heavy hitter with us today. Carly Munoz toured with the group, playing keyboards throughout the 1970s, a fascinating period in the band's history. And in that time, he wrote several songs for Dennis Wilson for the projected uh, follow-up album to Dennis's Pacific Ocean Blue. That was called Bamboo, and he's here to tell us all about it. Welcome, Carly Munoz. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, and hello to everyone who's been listening. You are in San Juan, Puerto Rico today, correct? Correct. Well, for the past 22 years, uh, you've owned a restaurant called Carly's Fine Bistro and Piano. Are are you guys able to operate right now? Well, that's the thing. Um, We've been operating uh, at a very um, low level in terms of... um, or, or, or hours and things like that. We're, we're just opening Thursday through Sunday. We never opened Sunday before, but because we're doing the weekend, that's what we're doing. And uh, very limited hours. We're, we're a fine dining restaurant with live music. So um, we're used to opening until like 11, uh, at least midnight, and, and then sometimes beyond when necessary. But now we have to close, be closed by 9.30, uh, 10 o'clock. And uh, before that, it was 7, 7.30, and I believe we're going back this week back to 7, 7.30, which is, is actually uh, devastating for the, for the, you know, for the small, for the restaurant business. Well, I hope uh, you're back up and running at normal hours soon. Uh, I saw a video uh, on Facebook, and I have to say the rack of lamb looks delicious. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, that's ours. Famous uh, rack of lamb, yeah. And you also, uh, you bless the uh, patrons with a performance from the Carly Munoz Trio. Yes, and I also, I perform uh, by myself a lot, which I love to do. I, I like to, uh, I like to do solo piano too, because it gives me a lot of freedom. And I'm, I'm into, um, you know, avant-garde music as well. So what I do, I, I improvise. I I can take a whole thing. I, I've been... Maybe I can take a theme, a known theme, and just work all around it. You know, the latest thing I've been doing, I don't know if you're familiar with a song called Giant Steps, written by John Coltrane. This is, you know, uh, hardcore jazz thing. Uh, well, I do a thing called Prelude to Giant Steps, which is, um, I mean, I, I take it as a theme, as a thread, as a backbone, and I, I just go all over the place with it. And, occasionally touch on on its actual melody and you know uh, run through the changes and improvising all that stuff so it's a lot of fun i love performing by myself but i love uh, performing with trio it's really a treat and it's it's great too and i miss that as well as performing duo i love performing duo uh piano and bass acoustic bass Carly, uh, when when did you discover you had this uh, musical gifting, which uh, obviously has uh, flourished throughout your life? You're a renowned uh, performer, recording artist, uh, way beyond just your time with the Beach Boys. But w- when did uh, how did you discover this? How did it come out? 
Well, uh, my earliest recollection, and uh, I've seen a picture of it too, it was uh, before I was four years old. Um, and I'm, I must have climbed up on a stool. My, there was a piano in our house because my older sister was taking lessons. And what I recall there is that she taught me uh, like the boogie woogie boogie woogie uh, cadence, like do 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 Brian Wilson's favorite song, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. So she taught me that, you know. Of course, um, chopsticks. I've never known the name of that. What what a, that's <laughs> one of the first songs that people learn as well. But. Uh, but I, I learned, uh, I remember having learned those three little basic um, riffs, let's say, uh, from Baby. And then I, the piano disappeared from my life. Oh, the, we moved. And uh, we didn't have a piano then for many years until I was 13 years old. And and and, and I I don't think I, I even thought about the piano or music until I was around 11, perhaps on a visit to, uh, I remember visiting my uncle who had a piano, he had a white grand piano at his, at his house. And uh, I climbed up there and played something. My parents, everyone was like impressed. Wow, what is he doing? I, well, I hadn't taken any lessons. Then I would visit friends. I had a, a school friend that they had two grand pianos at their house because they were in the process of getting a new one. So we fiddle around and, you know, like that. And then at 13, I got a piano for my parents when I turned 13. That, that was uh, my birthday gift. And and I was kind of, <laughs> I didn't really appreciate it. I, I just couldn't see it then. I, I, I thought, oh, gee, what? I want something with wheels. You know, I, I would love to have, <laughs> you know, something that... I was into motors and cars and, you know, all this stuff. And uh, so I had, I had this piano as a present and I ignored it for about six months. And uh, then one afternoon, one normal quotidian afternoon, I, uh, I just sat there, was bored and, and started kind of like laying my fingers on it and, and things Started making sense. Wow, this is a chord. Yeah, it was easy for me. And uh, my parents wanted me to take piano lessons, and I, I refused. Actually, I tried. I took, like, two lessons. This, like, Austrian older lady, and it was just nothing could have been more tedious and boring and <laughs> <laughs> grueling. <laughs> but, so uh, I got as far as, like, this little maybe 12 page booklet Thompson called teaching little fingers, how to play little red book and with Mary had a little lamb. <laughs> so I, I got to learn that I, I can read Mary had a little lamb. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you, uh, if I have the story correctly, you moved to New York to pursue rock and roll dreams at a pretty young age. Is that right? Oh yes. Yes, I did. Uh, but this is like important in my life prior to that. I had been listening to records, and uh, one of the one of the records I got early on was a jazz record called uh, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, plus Sabud, who's a famous percussionist, and uh, and 
one time I noticed on, on the on the newspaper my dad was reading that uh, Sabu was uh, was performing in San Juan uh, at a known cabaret. So, you know, again, I was I was being around 14, 15, and and I so I I went there and uh, that changed my life. Watching that, it was a, a great jazz band, a, a great jazz quartet. You know, with this. Uh, with uh, Mr. Uh, Sabu Martinez added to it. And uh, uh, that really impressed me at a very young age. And uh, I, I actually played with them because I, as I would be in the audience, I spent the whole summer going every night. I, I memorized, I knew everything they were doing, the whole show. It was complex, but I was able to observe it. And one time their bass player didn't show up. He was an upright bass player. I never, I never had one in my hands ever before. But I ran to stage and I said, "Hey, uh, <laughs> I can do. I can cover for you." <laughs> you know, with my. Uh, but I, I look older. You know, being a little taller than the other kids, and I would dress up. You know, uh, I, I dressed always dressed in a suit and tie, <laughs> and I had a cigarette in my mouth. So, so I was kind of like looking cool. You know having a cocktail. <laughs> so, so I, you know, in those days, it's talking about coming out of the fifties into the early sixties, you know, you could get away with those things. And in, in, in a, it's a small, you know, in a, a society like, like this was. And so, um, so yeah, well, they, yeah, well, might as well better to have a body out there holding the base than not, you know? So, so I did the whole thing. I did the whole show. I, I faked it. I just, uh, you know, I, the bassist didn't have an amplifier at that time. So, um, you know, not always. You know, it was kind of like beginning, but uh, it was just acoustic. So I, and I could do the rhythm. I forget the notes. You know, I could, in bass, you can, you know, you do a lot of walking and the noise, the, the notes just fly by and you don't really know what note that was. So, so I was able to fake it through and they were impressed. So I told them, oh, I play a little piano. So they, uh, I, I became their pianist, and that wow. was just amazing. This is like, these were all big guys, older guys. There's real system, the best jazz players that had performed with great bands in New York and you know everywhere. So, uh, so I became uh, their their pianist, and that was a, a great influence. So it was while playing there that uh, an acquaintance of mine who had a, a rock group, I, yeah, I had just seen him around you know playing they used to play a lot of uh stuff like the like the ventures and uh they were called the vultures so uh the their main guy the leader approached me at, at the club where i was playing jazz and said hey look you want to put together a band uh would you be into um you know being a founding member of a band and i said yes and so that was the living end and that was the, the rock band that uh we came out of puerto rico that were that we had uh, a relative success with, you know, Capitol Record Pictures. We're very, it was a really great band and we did really good in New York City. And um, that was, that was the, uh, my backbone experience on rock because we were really a rock band with great singers, great harmonies and, you know, original. Uh, we attracted a lot of people. So, Is this about 1964 around there? Yes, yes, uh, 64, 65, all through 68. We disbanded in 1968. It was just like 
you know, life in New York yeah, and the, the whole ambience of like, uh, you know, psychedelics and all, you know, it just got crazy and, and, and the band eventually disbanded. And uh, it was in 1969 when I was just like settling my life again that um, I had a roommate who was a Jack Riley who, who wrote with Brian Wilson and he huh. actually was manager of the Beach Boys. Well, he we, he invited me to go come to LA for a weekend, and uh, or, you know initially I said no, I I didn't want to, and he insisted. He had a ticket for me, he said just for the weekend, Carly, just for the weekend, come with me, and so I went with him, and and uh, that's how uh, we got to LA, and I never left. I stayed sixteen Car years in LA. Carly, uh, don't want to take us on too much of a side trip here, but uh, you mentioned Jack Riley and. He's, uh, as you are, uh, a famous name in the history of the Beach Boys, and certainly he's not around for us to talk to. Can you take a couple sentences? Uh, how did you connect with Jack Riley? What What was this guy like that maybe would help us better understand when we see his name as providing lyrics or uh, uh -huh. management? Uh, help us uh, fill in some some blanks here. Yeah, that, that that's a great question because he's he's been so undervalued. Uh, it's just amazing how undervalued uh, Jack has been. Uh, I met him, to answer your question, I, I met him in Puerto Rico. He was an anchor for uh, for NBC or CBS, one of, one of the two uh, networks. They had a satellite station here, I remember, on a hill. And uh, this is when, when the, you know, the group I mentioned, The Living End, the really yeah. fantastic rock group. Well, we needed a manager, so someone recommended this guy, Jack Riley. said, this, this guy, he's a journalist, he's brilliant, he's well-connected, and indeed, yeah, he, he was. Actually, he, he came from a very wealthy family in Milwaukee, and, and he had been around a very highly educated person. And uh, and he was a journalist and, and somewhat of a, you know, in, in, involved in politics. He, he was then later head of the Democratic Party in Delaware, you know, all that stuff. But but anyway, he be, he became our manager and, re, and, and friend, confident and, and really, really good friend. <clears throat> and when the band was breaking up, <clears throat> he uh, basically stood by my side and... Uh, um, and we, we were rooming together, and and uh, uh, then later when we when we come to LA, when we go to LA, we um, we were writing a lot together. We wrote a lot of songs together. Um, but he was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant person. Um, what happened is that we just went to LA for a weekend without jobs or. You know, just 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 for the weekend to go there and come back, and uh, the girlfriend from one of the guys, a drummer on my band, the Living It, she had given me a little uh, strip of paper with the name Ed Carter. She said, "Look, this is an Ed, this a this this guy. He plays with the Beach Boys, and he was my uh, an ex-boyfriend, or or acquaintance. You know, somebody I knew. I think it was they they went out or something like that." And her name was Sally. And uh, so, oh, okay, I put the number in my wallet, you know, no big deal. Okay, maybe 
somebody I called. I thought I was going for a week, and so I didn't call him. And but as another week went by, uh, I'm gonna give Ed, this guy at Carter a call. So he, uh, I made a very nice conversation over the phone. I told him who I was, and I was visiting from New York. He asked me to come over to Topanga Canyon to Mike Kowalski's house. Mm. Who, uh, you know, they always been buddies. Um, uh, Ed Carter and Mike Kowalski who also played with the Beach Boys. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, that Ed Carter was a, is a bassist and, and was a bassist and guitarist with the Beach Boys, one of the first backup musicians. So, um, so I went to, uh, I would spend a lot of time in Topanga Canyon jamming, and we really, I mean, we all really hit it off. I mean, uh, we really communicated that we had that musical language that uh, was very comfortable and creative for all of us. So, um, you know, that there was a special bond in there. So one time that the Beach Boys, uh, still I believe in 1969, that the Beach Boys had a tour, a small tour, and they didn't have a percussion. They, they needed, they wanted to have a percussionist because, you know, all the, uh, the best sound songs will have the orchestral percussion, things like that. So they asked me, hey, Carly, do you play percussion? Uh, and I said, yes, <laughs> I, I, I didn't really, but hey, son, to me, it was a, it's a no brainer. So, uh, and I didn't have any percussion instruments. So they see, I said, yes, but I don't have instruments. So oh, don't worry about it because they, they provide everything. So I said, well, fantastic. Well, you're in. So that was uh, my first few tours with the Beach Boys was, uh, was as a percussionist and you know, I just went along, uh, okay, a gig, you know, great. But, you know, the curious thing, and we're talking about Jack Riley, and I have to tell this story because it, it, it's parallel <clears throat> to something else that happened. So at the same time that this is happening, we're in L.A., and Jack is looking for work, right? So the one of the first places he goes applying for work is a radio station, which was a famous radio station uh, for being in the underground radio station in LA at the time was, uh, was KPFK in Studio City, a small station, the most radio uh, FM radio station. So he interviews for the job. Uh, he gets a job. Not only gets a job, but he gets a job as program director. <laughs> uh, right. Does, uh, I mean, but th this is how bright he was and, and, and convincing, you know, and, he, he just had the touch. So he becomes a uh, program director. One of the first um, uh, uh, programs that he, he, that one of the first like projects that, that he has set himself to program to leave the station was to interview the Beach Boys, right? So, wow. so he creates a, a set, you know, two interviews with the Beach Boys. Now, to make things still you know, like more amazing. The Beach Boys, during that first interview, asked him to be their <laughs> manager. Wow. Okay. As a token, and this this is what he told me. I mean, we're living together. So he comes back home driving a Bentley, like 1930s or 40s, <laughs> you know, that metal, dark green, mint, convertible, Bentley. Wow. <laughs> Vintage. He said, look, they gave me this as a token <laughs> for me to consider. They really want me to be their, their manager. 
Was he practiced in the art of hypnosis or something? <laughs> I know. Yeah, right. He was that. So anyway, he that there, he like he he hits not only looking for work, but he hits like a total complete jackpot. But I, I'm not surprised because he he was really brilliant. He he really was. I mean, it's something that any time spent with him, you you would know, and his wit and sense of humor. Uh, just everything about him was just, just a great person to, to be around. And so, he be, you know, of course, there were some conditions. Uh, he had to get rid of Nick Grillo, who was uh, the Beach Boys manager at the time, which he did, you know, with no <laughs> second thought. So Jack took over, and one of his premise with the Beach Boys was to, uh, metaphorically, to get him out of the, the strip shirts. Yeah. The stripe, the stripe shirts. So, right. in other words, he, he he wanted to to bring him to the new world to make him hip, you know, make him, you know, like uh, just just create a whole different image. So he's the one that he created the Holland thing. He wanted to take him to Europe, and you know, just expand their whole view and and uh, the music writing. And he he's encouraged Brian, uh, Brian to do surf up. Actually, he encouraged Brian to resurface, inspire him to resurface too. And he did a lot of writing for Holland and he even sang on it or spoke uh, on that story that, you know, what, what is it, the, the fairy tale yeah, thing? Mount Vernon and Fairway. Right. And so he created a whole new era for the Beach Boy. I, it, was, it was Jack who I think made the, um, make that difference for, for bringing the Beach Boys up front to, to make them more like hip group and to be able to compete with more with the Beach Boys, I mean, with the Beatles and the Stones and, be, you know, be, be a little more up to date. So anyway, so he was very, very brilliant. I mean, with being brilliant also, I mean, all the things coming there and he, he became a little controversial in certain things, especially in, in like uh, in intimate relations and um some things happen because you know they, they were there was like psychedelics and tripping yeah. and things get a little bit out of uh context then and you know stuff Wasn't happens good. so uh but it's curious that uh, that story was parallel with me getting in with the Beach Boy through Mike Kowalski and, and Ed Carter. So this all happened at the same time. We both got a jobs. We didn't, we didn't go to California to play with, the, to, you know, to work with the Beach Boys. I mean, we love the Beach Boys. We, you know, Beach Boys were a big part of my, you know, my musical life uh, as far as listening to pet sounds and all the stuff, even from Puerto Rico, even here. But, uh, and, and they were like one of our favorite groups, but, we had no clue that we'd be working with them. It's not like, okay, let's go to LA. We made a visual work for them. It's just what happened. <laughs> Can you remember the first time you were on stage with them? Uh, was it like, you know, you've done many concerts, of course, since then on your own and you have a great career, but was it, I don't know, it's a Beach Boy fan. I always think something special is happening at a Beach Boy concert. Uh, did you feel any of that as a performer? Oh my God! Of course, uh, just coming out on stage was like exhilarating. It was like uh, just—it's uh, a great feeling. You come out of stage and it's that roar. Uh, 
that's waiting for you, that's hungry for you, that's hungry for what you're going to give to them. And, and that, that was so awe-inspiring. And, and it, it just, it could, it, it, would, it could send a rocket to the moon. I mean, it was just, just amazing that level of energy and that little bit of fear that's wonderful that's like okay am i going to screw up this one <laughs> you know like, it's, i love that I, I still haven't lost that which is great i'd be worried whenever i lost that little fear but uh uh it, it's just it was just a fantastic feeling um well, carly every uh, beach boy concert i've been at you know i look at the performers and think they sure look like they're having a great time. They've just been, you know, for the last four days in four different cities. Uh, are they just putting on an act so that, you know, they're good performers? Or, you know, as a fan, I'm believing you guys are having no. a great time and you love it. Is that true? Yes, it is true. Yeah, I'm, we, we, we're not putting up a sh uh, like a, a facade or anything like that. It's, it's, it's genuine. It's authentic. Right. Uh, it's like a him you know it's like it's like a imagine if we were like a group of like this exterminators you know like so we go from town to town and we have a job to do you know we're gonna get those bugs out of your house your house your business <laughs> and you know we're proud of it you know we're like okay here we are we are the bug boss busters you know <laughs> and, and it was like that it's like Okay, we come to your town. We're gonna give you all we got, and uh, so oh, you can hear that in some of the live stuff. I mean, on, on the Beach Boys live, the the one that has the uh, 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 you know the trader leaving this town. Yeah, uh, where Dennis is on the cover. He's kind of red. He's on the he's right Beach Boys concert. Yeah, yeah, the Beach Boys concert live. Oh, what well, that's a I mean, you can, you can really, you can feel the energy. I'm, um, I used to get a, a solo that I particularly really got a, got off on. And it was like on leaving this town. I don't know if you, if you heard yeah. that, but I mean, that was, I would just pour my skin, my guts, my soul. Uh, I would just leave every bit of me there on those keys when when that would happen, and and it was always different because it was a solo, and I mean even if the sounds were the same, there was always a magic to to doing that same stuff. But it's never the same. I mean, it's, it's just never. Some things were a little, you know, certain songs are more or than that or less than that, and others, but. If you saw uh, the energy, the energy was there. It was fierce. It's like we're on a battle. We were really on a battle to to outdo ourselves, to to really do the best we could. So you do that that great uh, organ solo in leaving this town. Yeah, man. I I, I hear it today, and I I get both goosebumps. Bumps, to tell oh. you the truth, I mean, I and I you know I don't do that with my I I don't like listening to myself, but but I hear that. And I, I said, God, but I had such energy that I had. It was like, it was just an amazing, it was just an amazing agency and uh, an amazing energy level. And, and uh, it, it was, it's all hypnotic. I mean, I, you know, at the time you don't have a clue of what you're doing. It's just like, 
just go there and, and, and the crowd, I mean, you can tell you, there's a roar in the crowd after the solo. And it's like, it just goes up and a lot like comes down and, and then Blondie, Blondie, fantastic, fabulous Blondie just comes in and, and starts singing. Uh, it just uh, kills me that, that every time I hear that, that the whole band, the soul of it, and that song also, that song is, 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 is basically, it, 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 it depicts the, the soul of being, of being on the road, living this town for another one. Oh, and the, the pain uh, of coming down and, uh, you know, from whatever, it, it, it's just, the, the song is it's brilliant. And it's, it's really, that's what it's all about. And so who played that uh, solo on the Holland record? Was that Ricky? Oh, yeah, probably it was Ricky. And I hate to say it was, it's a little, you know, I wish I had been there then. I could have known better. For <laughs> <laughs> but be Ricky is like, oh, my God, hey, Ricky, what a great musician. I mean, keyboard wasn't his thing. You know, I mean, he's, he's a drummer. He could just, he's such a great musician, whatever. He, he played steel guitar, he played guitar, he played, he could play anything, you know. Just that, uh, what an what a amazing drummer! It, I had so much fun playing with Ricky, and sometimes we do our thing. We play jazz too, and uh, he's just like just one of the most amazing drummers I I ever 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 known. You guys would also stretch out with a very jazzy rendition of Caroline No, and I think you played electric piano on that. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. Little jazzy. I mean, I, I, I wasn't always sure if that called for the jazzy thing. I mean, such a beautiful song, but it just, just gave us a little opportunity to, to stretch. Now, living this town was, was like a natural for stretching. And on, and on that version, you can really hear Ricky. Ricky just is solid, solid but fluid, you know, because Dennis was solid. But, uh, but Dennis, of course, you know, he was like, it's like Ringo, you know, he's like, his drumming was Beach Boys. I mean, nobody could do it better. No one. But that's it. That's, that's what he did. That's, that's what he did best. And uh, Ricky Fattar was like, he just like kill it. Another drummer, of course, was Bobby Figueroa. Now, didn't you play with him in your early days in L.A. in a band called Poverty Train? Yeah, there was a band where we played together with, uh, uh, yeah, I remember the, uh, it was Ron by the leader, I forget his name, the bass, the bassist, and we, uh, we went to, uh, we, we sort of, you know, we met in LA and uh, we, uh, soon we went to Hawaii, spent some time in Hawaii, it was a lot of fun, it was a great band. I love, I, that's where I discover, uh, you know, Bobby's playing. He was great. Bobby, the way Bobby responded to, to everything, to every genre, he was just amazing. Plus, he had a great voice. I loved his voice, the way he sang. So I, when I was on, uh, I went back on tour with the Beach Boys. When I, I say went back, because, you know, at first I was a percussionist, and then I, I went back as a, as a, keyboardist uh, organ and piano after daryl left so uh, i had Th that being daryl dragon daryl dragon right and uh they they had dennis i think ricky was there but 
Ricky wasn't there for that at that time. I, I really don't remember if it was before Ricky or after that they needed a second drummer. Or maybe it was Michael Wolski wasn't going on tour anymore for some reason, for some time. And uh, I I said to them, I said to Carl, hey, look, I, I'm Dennis. I, I, I've been playing. I have played with someone who I highly recommend. I'd like you to hear him. That was Bobby. So I, I brought Bobby in and he out. Uh, I believe he auditioned. He auditioned and uh, and that was it. They he he went on tour immediately with the band and and that was great. I I could have my friend, you know, my new friend uh, and uh, also good drummer. Uh, I every band I was with, I always ended up recommending a drummer because that was so important for me. You know, I life would be miserable with a lame drummer. It was a, a big band with a with a big sound. And I mean, if you if you could tell us what what it was like before the big endless summer resurgence in 1974, like if we look at 1973, you're playing a lot of universities, colleges. I mean, the, the material that you could choose from was great because the new songs were great. You know, there was the back catalog, which, which was fantastic. Um, and, and, you know, the professionalism of the band had improved so much, you know, since, say, from 1968 to that point with the addition of musicians like yourself. So what, what was that feeling in 73? It's like the momentum was, was gaining. Yeah. Well, one, one thing they, they had early on, even from the seventies was the, the, the horn section. And this, this were great guys. I mean, there was a uh, Joel Peskin on, on saxophone. Uh, this guy, the trombonist was Glenn Ferris, who then later went to Paris. He's a famous musician in, in France, uh, uh, Mark Cortez, Sal Cortez, uh, trumpet, and, and a couple of other guys that, that Jim uh, Jim Price. Yeah, yeah, Jim Price also played trumpet, and um, I um, I can't remember some of the other guys' name, but oh yeah, yeah, uh, uh, oh uh, Michael Andreas. Later, Michael Andreas. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure if he was there then or he came. I think Michael Andreas came later. But Michael Andrews uh, played a big role with the Beach Boys. He became very close to uh, Dennis and Carl, and he, he's just a great guy and, and very knowledgeable. And he did a lot of arranging and things like that. And uh, but I th- I think the, uh, the the impact besides the the Beach Boys and what they could give vocally and and uh, in in content was uh, they had a, this great horn section. You know, these crazy guys that they could play anything. I'll never forget. And uh, we did one of the last, if not, if it could have been the last show. I mean, the, the, the historical information may correct me on that, but uh, the Fillmoreist. And I'll never forget backstage, the uh, the horn players started jamming just jazz, you know, just, just the <laughs> horns. There might, there might have been a snare or something, but that was like, hey, that was just as hot as anything you see at any 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 era, you know, by anyone. I mean, especially like Glenn Ferris. That's what I, I said. Wow, this this guy, Glenn Ferris and Joel Peskin, these guys can really, really, really play. And that was very, very uh, impressive. There wasn't a piano at the time, but that was a little... I mean, that story that what I just said about those guys jamming kind of reminded me of a story how 
I shifted to piano. Uh, and it was it was around those tours. It was in New York, and we were uh, the band had uh, rented a loft to do rehearsing during the day, and we had the horn section. So and Daryl Dragon was there. So there was a break, a lunch break, where where Carl and Dennis and Al would, you know, the other guys would would go for lunch. So we were we were still there, hungry to play. The horn section started jamming. Jazz, obviously, which was their passion. And they're doing this hot jazz thing, and Daryl Dragon was the piano, but he gets up because he doesn't, that, that wasn't his thing. So I'm just there. I mean, I was their, their uh, percussionist, but I sit on the piano and I start jamming with them. You know, we were, we were on my field then. And then the, the Beach Boys come back in, and I'll never forget, Carl, Carl just sits takes me apart and says, Carly, if you can play this were his words exact, if you can play that sophisticated, this sophisticated music, I'd like to see what you can do with us. And then he asked me, do you play organ? Would you be interested in say organ? Yes, that's what I play with my, this famous group, you know, that could have been very famous too, but we just, we broke, but we, we had, uh, you know, successful, in, at least in New York, uh, the living in, and that's why I played organ, so I'm very fluent with that, plus I'm familiar with, with your music, so that was it. From then on, right after uh, Daryl left, Carl called me, and I was the keyboard player. So sometimes, uh, I, you know, the picture, the, the picture of you guys on stage, it seemed like you were all brothers, so to speak, uh, you know, unified, joyful uh, presentation. But backstage, it might have been a little different story. Uh, everybody in their own space, so to speak. Yeah, well, sometimes we—I mean, we shared. We shared a lot. We, you know, we were like a family, really. Uh, not only backstage, but back at the hotel, we spent a lot of time together. You know, we went through like the ups and downs. You know, when Mary passed away, that was a, a big issue, and you know, but Carl, Dennis, and myself—you know—it—it it was. You know, I, I was with them at that time very closely, and, and that was, they really felt that. And, uh, and there were, you know, we practically, we lived together, and we went through a lot of ups and downs. I suppose the, I mean, the ups were, were the ups were always when we played. I mean, when we played, it was always, was like the ultimate release of energy. Backstage, it's like hurry up and wait, and, and you know sometimes yeah. I have a little fun. Dennis was a prankster. Uh, I was kind of I was a prankster too. I am, and so we, we did a lot of crazy stuff. And so confession time. Thank you very confession much. Confession time. Right, right, right. I won't say what I did because it might be inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> that what made him chase me all through all this auditorium. <laughs> You just mentioned that you you know you play with George Benson and I've seen names of other great jazz blues players players etc. But I also saw the name Jan and Dean. So have you did you do some stuff with? Uh, uh, yes, Dean yes. Moore? At some point they they uh, they came back and and uh, you know like rekindling an old uh, flame with the Beach Boys, right? And, yeah. And uh, so. They, there was a point when they were open. They were opening up for the Beach Boys, and and they needed bassist, and and I I had been a bassist with 
my very very first rock band. Anyway, I had I had played bass, electric bass before, so I was uh, I was a bassist for for those shows. What were those experiences like? Where I know opening acts sometimes that no one's paying attention, but was that a fun I, experience? Well, yeah, it was fun because they they are they're so related to the Beach Boys, you know, in genre that. Sure. Um, yeah, it was fun. It was acceptable. Um, it was different. For example, like if you know, I feel sorry for other other bands that are open for the Beach Boys. I mean, I never seen people get booed so much. You know, <laughs> even with the tour with Chicago, I mean, people were just waiting for the Beach Boys. You know, Chicago would open, and and they okay, what's uh, when are the Beach Boys going to start? You know, um. I think even in Wembley Station, when Alton John played, you know, they, it was the Beach Boys. You know, that's that's what they wanted to hear. But that's interesting because when when they did the Beachago tour, the initial idea, as far as I understand, was that the Beach Boys were going to open for Chicago. But you guys were were so hot, you know, and and Jim Gersio told me that backstage the guys from Chicago were were pissed off. They they thought they were going to be kind of the in the spotlight, and 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 then the Beach Boys kind of took it out from under them. They were very pissed off, but that was the organic thing to do. I mean, this just what people demanded, you know, so, I mean, it otherwise would have been weird really going against the grain to have the Beach Boys open for Chicago, you know, so anyway, it was, it was, it was friendly, it was a friendly tour, everything worked fine, Alton John appeared at some point, you know, joined, joined the, the stage and, um, you know, the people, uh, uh, Art, uh, Simon, uh, Paul Simon, jumped in it, it was a fun tour um a lot of craziness too i mean craziness from the especially on the part of uh chicago you know they they were a little nutty and, and the, the beach boys were too at times just so so 74 if we back it up because uh, Bichago was 75 so in 74 as, as we alluded to there was this you know endless summer was released like the beach boys were on the soundtrack to american graffiti all of a sudden the beach boys were the hottest thing like top of the charts biggest you know american touring band and and jim gersio was there and and he, i think he was helping carl sort of direct the band and you guys were were you know going a little bit more towards like you had so many hits that people wanted to hear you were doing the hits and, and the crowds were getting bigger so could you tell me about that the transition to that uh period yeah yeah uh, well big uh jim gershaw was was uh, a, a powerful uh uh force uh, within the beach boys he uh he, i think he he led the, the group in you know in the right direction plus he played and the and he 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 was very decent player he could play he you know the 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 pulse of the of the group was was solid when he played bass and i think he enjoyed it too a lot and uh yeah he he i think he made some good choices good good uh creative and commercial choices for the beach boys and of course then he had caribou ranch which was a a great homestead for for the group anytime that you know the group needed, uh, you know, a getaway and, and record. We spent really, really fun times at Caribou Ranch, and and that's that was important. Um, some recordings, of course, came out of there, and and uh, but most of all, it's 
uh, you know, like the 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 idea that that the beach the beach boys we could all get away for you know to a place like that and and still be able to to come up with quality uh, recording, which is which is amazing. But yeah, I I think that uh, Gershio was um, he was a good force. He he was good for the group. He also he financed uh, he he okayed uh, financing uh, Bamboo. He's also the one who pulled the plug, but uh, I think that was based on uh, you know like shady information. Uh, although you know not altogether, but uh, I think he he might have pulled the plug a little too soon and uh, so Dennis didn't get to enjoy the fruit I mean of course part of this is on Dennis because Dennis became so unstable during that recording so I don't know maybe pulling the plug was the right thing to do let's back sorry let's back that up just a little bit so obviously Dennis had this big success with with Pacific Ocean Blue um, and were you involved with that at all? Like, I, I know there's a track called Mexico, which exists as an instrumental track, and you're credited on that track, I think, with playing harpsichord and percussion and, and production as well. I believe that was part of the Pacific Ocean Blue uh, sessions. Is that right? Yeah, I, I, the, the thing about Pacific Ocean Blue is that those recordings were scattered. So I don't know what, I don't know when, I don't, it's just like uh, if I happen to be around or, you know, if, if, it's just I, I it, it wasn't like a linear thing okay we're gonna go on, on the studio we're gonna make this album uh, so yes I participated but in, you know like in scattered ways um, like that I'm, I'm you know of course bamboo was a whole other thing there was a like a purpose I was a producer um, it's it's uh, you know it was a whole other thing with bamboo where like you know it was a uh, as far as my concern, it was deliberate. So, okay, so Bamboo was going to be the follow-up album. Now, what's amazing to me about all this is that on Pacific Ocean Blue, Dennis composed all those songs. Sure, he had collaborators, Greg Jacobson, Stephen Kalinich. He wrote all those songs, though. And then with Bamboo, you wrote a lot of those songs. So, so how did this collaboration begin, and, and, and what, when did uh, Dennis become aware of your composing talents okay this happened on the road dennis and i had had become very close uh and we were hanging out a lot together we were rooming together and uh one time i at the same time i i was in back in LA. i was living in a place called mount washington where i had uh built a studio in my house and I was I went ahead and recorded a lot of these songs that I had written over over the years, including songs that I had written with Jack Riley and some my lyrics, his lyrics, you know, just a bunch of stuff. So I had made sort of like a, I had a four track there, Sony four track, and I had made a demo of these songs. And uh, so I had it with me. I played it for Dennis. And the moment that Dennis heard it, he said, my God, he said, this is going to be my next record. I want you to produce it, and I want it to be all your songs. So Bamboo was supposed to be all my songs, Wow, 100%. And 
he asked me to produce to produce it i my answer to him was that no or yes yeah i i will participate in producing it but i will co-produce it because i felt he had already done uh pacific ocean blue and i felt that not only be fair enough but that artistically of course you know he was gonna have his hand on it so let's let's cut the bull now right now we're gonna co-produce this <laughs> you know i know i'm not i know i'm not just gonna be a producer telling you everything what to do and you're gonna do everything i say I, in my mind i knew that so okay we're gonna co-produce this this album so we agreed on it uh he uh he reached out to gershio and and he got I believe it was like a hundred thousand dollars to uh, to do do this at their own studio, which uh, which was a brother brother studio in Santa Monica. So we start tracking, and uh, we did we began we began in four songs, which was uh, you know the, the four songs that I I. You know, I, I see him as a pillar of of the actually the outcome of the album because those were the, those those are the only original songs that were meant to be for that album, which was Constant Companion, uh, All Alone, uh, Standing All Alone, If I Could Live, Yeah, All Alone, uh, Under the Moonlight, and uh, the other it's one is what? Uh, it's not too late. It's not too late, right? So. Um, all the songs I had written before, before the Beach Boys. Well, the, I, I did write one while I, I was on tour with the Beach Boys. I remember we were on a flight to London, and that was uh, uh, Under the Moonlight. I wrote it on the plane. Uh, but all the other songs I had, I had written before, and, uh, and then there were other songs like uh, 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 Wake Up America, which had a different working title than uh, do up. It was like shoot about because they had that shoot about, shoot about, shoot about. So what happened is that we were working in sets and sets of four. Plus we had some light sketches of some of the other songs that were going to be on the album. Well, what we did, we concentrated on those four songs and built on them to a certain extent. You know, we got other musicians, you know, to do do parts and, and we built on it and we got choruses and, you know, uh, Dennis always did. He always wanted to do a, a, a vocal, a scratch vocal. And so that's how the vocals got there. But I could tell you none of those vocals were final. Right. And one of them I would have never approved of, which is uh, uh, All Alone. Uh, but anyway, yes, he did it. So, uh, Carly, let me interrupt you just to let people know uh, you have recorded those songs on your own and yes. they're available maybe in many places, but certainly on Spotify. Oh, uh, yes, which is, uh, is in my soul. What I did then was uh, I the purpose for me doing that album is because I was quite indignated when. Uh, when uh, Bamboo came out, not yeah, and I'm glad, you know, on, on you know, ultimately, I'm, I'm happy that it came out because I'm happy for the fans. I'm happy that for for Dennis' memory, I'm happy for his succession, you know, I'm happy for 
for for the world of music that that actually that that actually it it did come out. So that's that was a good thing. Um, but I was indignated because it was done all behind my back. You know, I was a producer, and uh, people that were on the fringe of it. I mean, and I'm, I'm telling you this. Uh, uh, while we were doing Bamboo, uh, these other people that claim to be producers and all the stuff, they, they were very far on the fringes of everything. I'm, I'm talking far. They, they didn't have any substantial participation at all. So it was the, the fact that Dennis uh, wasn't there any longer because he passed away and I left LA and uh but i was i could have been consulted i i mean it was her project and so that was uh, uh, the, uh, the, at the moment was uh, a bit regretful you know and uh i felt a little bit treacherous so that's why i recorded the album that's why i did that project mm-hmm. in my soul i wanted because i didn't have the control it i felt that it lacked the quality that it could have had as well so I re-recorded all those songs the way I, I would have recorded them, mm. the way they would have been mixed. The only thing that was missing, of course, was Dennis's voice, which uh, just impossible to have. Uh, so I, I, and I look for a singer. I, I've never considered myself a lead singer. So I, I look for singers. I try singers. But all they would do is try to imitate me. So I said, well, might as well I do it. So, <laughs> so I did all the singing. Imitate yourself, right? Right, right. I'll imitate myself. So that's the, uh, that's the honest. Um, that's the real story behind that. Well, thanks for taking us a little behind the scenes on that, not to criticize others, but to right. make your role or the appropriate role that you should have had. Uh, people should know about that. Yeah, you're you're the ultimate source on these songs. So let's let's ask you. I mean, when you talked about under the moonlight, you said you uh, you wrote it on a plane. So that that's like a straight ahead kind of blues based rock and roll song, um, and and it's sort of a parody of of rock and roll stardom too. It's kind of an amusing yes. song. I, yeah, I kind of imagine David Lee Roth doing doing the video on that. <laughs> I always wondered if uh, there was a little nod to Dennis's past in that song, even in the title under the moonlight, because, you right. know, the only the only hit song that Dennis Wilson ever sang for the Beach Boys was Do You Want to Dance? And of course, there's a line in there. Do you want to dance under the moonlight? So I always saw a connection there, but maybe I'm imagining it. You don't know. No, I mean, yeah, you're imagining it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. No, only in the sense that I, I wasn't aware of that. But what, what, what inspired this song, this uh, well, kind of... Well, that's interesting. I, I'm glad you mentioned it because now I know. <laughs> but but I, I truly, I, I had never made that connection before. Um, the, the reason uh, that song makes reference for Under the Moonlight is because of my own, my own background, my own uh, sense of, uh, you know, my, my, my changes, my, my history in music because... Uh, I come from an era where Guy Lombardo and, you know, those like orchestras that were like, there would be uh, like outdoor parties in, you know, in tropical places under the moonlight. And, and uh, you know, you have Gregory Peck and, you know, and some gorgeous actress, you know, like dancing under the moonlight. You know, is that 
that part, that romantic part in me uh, that is kind of like a dichotomy, you know, like with rock. Is you know, it's like almost, you know, they like two opposing things that kind of work together. I want to be a rock on the stall, but, you know, I want to keep, I want to remain, I, I want to hold on to that, that romantic sense of under the moonlight. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah. I want to be, a, I, I want to be a rock and roll star, but I'll hang on to that romantic part of it. You know, I, I, I don't identify with like the trashy, a punkish, uh, hard metal, but you know, I want to keep a, a certain element of that, that old time, like late 40s, 50s elegance right. of Under the Moonlight. Well done. Great song. Now there's It's Not Too Late. What a song. Uh, this is such a gem. Uh, so much emotion in the song. I mean, to me, what it's about is, is uh, lovers who have been separated and, and the narrator of the song you know, hopes for a reconciliation. And this ended up being uh, a great duet between Dennis and Carl. And the amazing thing to me about the song is it seems so Dennis. Like, I mean, you said you wrote these songs a long time ago. It almost seems like you wrote it for Dennis because it fits in so well with other ballads that he wrote, like Farewell, My Friend or, or other things. Right. So how, how, how does the song fit Dennis so well? Well, first, get ready for this. I wrote this song in 1968. Wow. Whoa. It's probably one of the first songs that I wrote. I was still living in New York. And I was, I remember when I wrote this song, I was, I was living in a loft in the village and it was dark. I think I was, I might've been tripping on LSD. <laughs> and, and I had a, I put a, I blindfolded myself and I was on the organ. And that's how I wrote the song. Wow. And I had gone through a like some kind of like a breakup with this girl, like her name was Jody Lean, and uh, and it was like uh, it was just yearning, you know, it was just a yearning for, you know, someday we'll meet again, and it was a very kind of like a, it had some like really spiritual undertones, and that fit when Dennis. It's one of the songs that Dennis heard uh, that I played for him. Uh, you know, on, on the road, and he, he flipped. He said, oh, my God, he said, said that. He said, your songs are like if, as if they had been written for me. Oh, wow. That's cool to hear. This has to be in your book that you're working on, right, this story? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and how much, did he, how much did he bring to, to it? You know, you said that you guys co-produced. Well, oh, he, he brought a lot to it. He's, uh, of course, one of part, part of my job, was to, uh, you know, to to be open and, and to carry on and to be willing and, and to, you know, be be uh, instrumental in, in in shaping his ideas. If they did shaping, you know, uh, or just being a buddy, but just basically, you know, uh, uh, creating the scenario also for for him to best express himself. And try not to go too crazy. <laughs> uh, uh, to kind of like, I, 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 I'd be, uh, I, I, I would have to hold him back a little, little bit sometimes, you know. You mean in terms of him overproducing? Because I think there are some examples, like if you yeah. look at "Cuddle Up," which is a beautiful song, but some people find there's almost too much going on in a song like that. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, the tendency would have been to overproduce at times. And so, you know, it was, um, you know, we have to keep it simpler. I mean, have the elements. Yeah, for example, on, it's not too late. He, he, you know, he brought in this choir, this like Baptist uh, choir, and it wasn't, in, it wasn't in tune. You know, it was like, uh, it's, I, on the, on the tracks that, on the bamboo uh, tracks uh, of the song, it's really, it's way, way back. Because uh, this is this was my original my my mix my my uh, what what do you call it it's like a like the um, trial mix you know my rough mix right was well, my rough mixes was always like way back because it, it was out of tune and it would just throw the whole thing off uh, in such a beautiful track you know and 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 getting called to do that part that was amazing I uh, you know was so happy I remember the night that. We did that, you know. I we both talked with to Carl, and, and and they 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 were going through some really really intense emotional stuff at the time. This is this is it was it was really 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 intense. I mean, Dennis was really, uh, you know, like really uh, uh, in a precarious situation with the group, and uh, also he was like in big fight with Karen and and. And the the group itself was like at a, at a really going through some major turmoil, and it, to the point where Car, even Carl and Dennis weren't talking to each other, you know, at, at that very precise point. And so, like, getting with Carl on the phone and getting him back, getting him to come that evening. It was in the evening, early evening, to come into the studio and and do that part. It was like. It was just an act of reconciliation, and uh, that's why. And you can hear that. And you know, Beautiful there's a lot of emotion, emotion there. Uh, the kind of emotion I, <laughs> I wish I had been able to bottle and put on my tracks, but my tracks are different. I think musically, my tracks are superior. But of course, uh, vocally, I, I would have been, I would have wished for the impossible to have, you know. Carl and, and Dennis on those tracks, but I even thought of like somehow sampling them, and but you know there would have been legal issues and all that kind of stuff, so I I did it myself. Are, are you playing? Sorry, are you playing the Hammond B3 organ on that uh, on that track? Is that you playing keyboards? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm piano and and uh, hops. Uh, which track are you talking about? The bamboo or my track? The bamboo. Yeah. Organ, piano, and, and uh, uh, harpsichord too. What did you think of Dennis's skills as a keyboardist? I mean, here's an untrained musician, but he blew a lot of people away with how he could play. Sometimes, well, he he could, you know, he could work his way, and he he uh, he could lay out some good ideas. He had a good sense of music, and he had some really he could come up with some really interesting chord structures and. Uh, songs uh he yeah he was uh he was a very talented guy he uh, you know he lived in the shadow of his older brother brian of course and and the public but uh i'm being a drummer you know that marginalized him a little bit in that sense but he's uh dennis was very talented dennis and and i think he was happy to to be expressing that 
on, on in both projects. Carly, do you, do you, and maybe this is well known and I just don't know it, but did he have uh, the name for that second album, Bamboo, uh, right away? Did, did he know both of the, like album one, album two, or no? How, any idea how that name came out? And what did it mean to, to him or to both of you? Well, Bamboo uh, was, came out later. You know, we were thinking of names. I, I came up with a name that and he really liked it, which was the end of the line. And and he really liked that name. And uh, wow, that's almost prophetic. Yeah, I know. Really, in many ways, he loved that name. And really, one bamboo actually came out after I I left the project. After he left, you know, well, not not after he left. He, I think he that has something to do with a, a trip he made with uh, Greg Jacobson to Hawaii. It's just something I read. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm, it's it's roll, rolling papers, isn't it? Isn't it like the rolling oh yeah, papers? Yeah, bamboo is rolling paper. Also, um, it, if you go to Hawaii, there's a lot of bamboo. There's bamboo forest. Maybe, you know, maybe it had to do with the rolling paper. Maybe it had to do with the, with the forest in the bamboo forest in Hawaii. But uh, um, really, at the time that we were producing it, it 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 really didn't have a. You know the name has hadn't been solidified. Sure. So that, okay. you know, that really came out later. So we, we talked about it's not too late, which I said really feels like a Dennis song. Now a song that doesn't feel like anything that Dennis or the Beach Boys had done is "Constant Companion." It's got this this <laughs> uh, this kind of Latin ca- carnival kind of rhythm to it. So I wanted uh, to hear more about that song, and if you could please tell me about uh, Rags Baker. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, what a guy! But uh, going going back to the song first, um, yes, it, it 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 kind of celebrates something that's uh, it's very deep, which is um, you know the the context of it is uh, uh, a companion, it's a spiritual companion, and um, which is very 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 much. Uh, uh, it's a theme that is <clears throat> very, very close to Dennis and very close to the converse, kind of conversations, very intimate conversations that we had. We used to talk a lot about uh, spiritual stuff, about afterlife. He had a lot of questions about that. And, and, and that was, we talked about that a lot. We talked about a lot about life and death. And, uh, so that, that, that was very close to him. I think that's, that's part of the reason he loved that song. Uh, so, so Carly, you said spiritual. I mean, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Is this like a, a God companion? Uh, yeah, yeah. Like I don't want like, to stretch you on that, but is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, like he he had he pondered about, on questions about afterlife, for instance, and I and I did too, you know. And and I think that's part of why we connected so much because we were both. Uh, you know, we both inquire about those things. We 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 both like you know, we 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 both had the, those kind of questions, and we're like very like it's spiritual oriented. That maybe there was more than our faith had told us, or you know, like uh, right. the mainstream. Uh, you know, and and so he went deeper. I went deeper. We we both and we both would have those those uh, conversations. Um. 
and that's evident in Companion and also in It's Not Too Late, because It's Not Too Late is that somewhere in the afterlife, you know, we'll meet again. Um, so that was that was a thing that was very, very close to him. Rags Baker. Rags Baker. Oh, yeah. Rags Baker was like a comet that flew by. Uh, what a talented guy. I mean, he just flew out. He's out of nowhere. He had no relatives. He uh, just showed up kind of like as a groupie when I had my jazz band in L.A. between tours. And, you know, we'd be pl- playing places like underground places like the Blah Blah Cafe uh, uh, in Studio City and the Comeback Inn in Venice. We played the Palomino Club and, you know, a lot of other like down city clubs. The Palomino Club was one of the better known clubs, but uh, Rex Baker was always around, around, just just kind of like a groupie, and uh, he wanted he wanted to play, he wanted to do his thing too, and with my musicians so he put a band together, I, I assisted him with my musicians and, and he turned out to be an incredible performer and, and composer, so we became very good friends, and at, at that studio that I mentioned that I had in uh, Mount Washington uh, we did a lot of stuff together. We just one time, and this is how uh, how uh, Companion happened. Uh, I had I had done the track to Companion, like I had done a an instrumental track, just as you heard, but instrumental. And uh, I thought, well, it's, it'd be great to have lyrics to this. So so we um, brainstorm a few ideas, and, and basically he. I, I got to give him, you know, like 90%, at least 90% of the credit. He came up with this, this really brilliant lyrics about a constant companion. And we recorded it there and then. He had a great voice, by the way. And we did the demo. And this we finished this demo like around 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, right? So this we said they were so jazzed up about the demo sounded so good said somebody gotta somebody have to hear this right now so what do we do okay let's get in the car let's go get arrested so we can play for the cop (laughs) (laughs) so that's what we did (laughs) so we went out we were like the only car you know like this is down from the hill from mount washington it's like an area called like uh highland park san fernando road and kind of like a funky area so we were we looked city you know these two long hair guys there this big old car like uh, moving slowly you know like so we could get stopped so we got stopped and we we hey man you know i just we just finished this we were just really we just really want you to hear this and we played it for the- <laughs> desperate for an audience desperate i that's what you call desperate for an audience <laughs> and it was a great track i I hope I still have it somewhere in one of my old cassette tapes. Because he was just when Dennis heard that, he just flipped. He did it exactly. I mean, he did everything exactly how I had it. Yeah, that, as I said, that's uh, that's a unique song by by in the Beach Boys canon. And Carly, you just uh, reminded me. You had mentioned doing some songs with Jack Riley, and you you just said you know you hope you have it in your cassette stack. Uh, are those songs? Uh, accessible to people to hear or are they well uh... the, the, they are on on the on the album on the uh, 
what would have been the bamboo album, the which is in my soul. Okay. They they are there. Uh, for example, um, uh, there's a song called um, uh, uh, "No One's There." It's one of the songs. No one is there. Okay. Uh, it had a different title before, uh, but I didn't like the title, and uh, it was called "The Family's Dead." But you know, I don't like to be so cryptic about you know the song so i uh, i gave it a different twist and i rewrote some stuff too in it um to you know to, to make it more like clear about the you know the purpose of the song because it was all so metaphorical that it was almost like too difficult to to understand so on the end uh it just all becomes more clear what what the idea is about it, and it's a great song. He's great. He and wrote that's Jim Riley, uh, co-write or something. Yes, yes, absolutely. He okay. also co-wrote the words to uh, to uh, the, my most recent album, which is called "Follow Me," which is a great song, which is called "Follow Me," and uh, uh, that's just really. Uh, it's just an amazing song. It's really like a, an experience. It's almost like a, it's like an, an, an experience in nature of, you know, that has a lot of different levels and, uh, you know, you could say psychedelic too, but um, it has some down to earth elements to it. Uh, and it's very, very, very brilliant uh, words that, that he wrote uh, to that song. Uh, the other song off uh, Bamboo that we didn't really talk much about was All Alone, except that you said that you weren't satisfied with the uh, the Dennis vocal that is there. I mean, nonetheless, I mean, it's still it's still a powerful song, and it's kind of uncanny. This is another one that feels so right for Dennis. I mean, especially in retrospect. I mean, here's a guy that was five years away from the end of his life, and it's a, it's a great song about uh, kind of mourning and regret. And, you know, I know Alan Boyd used it to great effect in the documentary uh, Endless harmony. So, uh, how, how did how again did you end up writing a song that was so so perfect for Dennis? Well, it was my story, really. That's that's why we bonded so so much so well. It, uh, this story, you know, the length of time that it took me to write that song, the words and the lyrics, was how long is the song? Like maybe uh, seven, eight minutes, something like that. That's the length of the time. That's it was a one shot deal. I sat on the, on the piano this again in Mount Washington, early, you know, like early 70, 1970, maybe 71. And uh, I just sat there and it just, it was one shot, one shot. I happened to have the, my cassette, little cassette player there, and recorded it, just as you hear it today. So it was very heart, uh, heartfelt. I had gone through a, uh, a breakup with my girlfriend and I was, uh, you know, I, there was a lot of guilt involved. I had messed around and, and you know, it's just like, if I could live my life again, I'd never do you wrong. Wow. And, and uh, so it, it was just, um, I, I was just pouring out the whole thing. And Dennis could identify with that. Dennis was that, you know, and yes, at the time true. and many times. So 
that's a, that's a thing, and that's that's how and why, you know, he got so excited, and he asked me to, he wanted everything from me, you know, at that moment, he, that's why he asked me, I want to do all your songs, I want you to produce them. First of all, the way they were produced on the demo, they sounded great, and and he wanted that sound, you know, and and then the meaning of them, you know, what they meant to him was, uh, you know, was right. Shame that uh, the plug, you know, I mean, I, I pulled the, I pulled the plug in a sense. I'm, I'm also responsible for that because I, well, you know, with Dennis Grayson is, and I had a family, you know, and Dennis was just getting way, way too um, uh, unpredictable and wanting to record at all all hours uh spontaneously and i get calls one time i i'm sleeping you know i'm my home with my kids and <laughs> sleeping and it's like at two o'clock in the morning I, I get this call from dennis and 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 christine McVeigh. what are the lyrics to oh, to uh all alone again you know okay I had to give him the lyrics, you know. I mean, Christine was with him, so he, she could write him down. And but this is one of the multiple times that he he attempted doing, you know, after a relationship that doing vocals. You know, he would jump from studio to studio. To, uh, Tom Murphy uh, in in Hollywood, uh, Sterling in uh, what's his name, uh, Sterling something or something Sterling the keyboardist in Venice, uh, with the, he had a little recording rig, and he was just like kind of desperate going from place to place, uh, trying to do these vocals, and his voice was like just deteriorating, and, and his yeah. health and his whole thing, you know, his, um, there was very little to hold on to at that time. And, you know, with Christine, uh, Christine was was really a very kind person and and I think she really tried to help him but little did she know that you know making him you know like making uh, money accessible to Dennis again was also dangerous you know and resources so uh, and he ended up hurting himself more and as much as she tried to uh, to help him you know it was it was a difficult thing well that had to be a hard a moment, so to speak, for you as well, because you saw the potential of this. Totally. Uh, and uh, to to have the, can I use the word, courage to to say, you know, to pull the plug, however you did that, uh, took a lot of integrity. And and really, and, and some, well, maybe I'm trying to be a little too Pollyanna here, maybe, but uh, I think you were really trying to do something good for Dennis as well. Great story. All of them. Great stories, Carly. Carly, we're so grateful that you came on to speak with us today. Uh, we're certainly grateful for uh, the great performances you did with the group on stage and, and the songs that you wrote with Dennis. We're, we're very happy to, to have those and uh, hope to have you back. Uh, really uh, appreciate your time today. Well, I'll, I'll, be, uh, I'll be happy to, uh, to come back and finish all these stories and go a little deeper. And thank you. Thank you for having me. This, uh, this is an honor for me. And uh, I wish you the best on your show. Thanks, Carly. And for all our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Come back next time and we'll do it again. 
Oh, let's do it again. <laughs>